0: hello everyone and welcome to cinema joes the podcast where three average joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture my name is justin and i'm joined here today by alex how you doing alex i'm good justin how are you i'm doing pretty well um very very busy recently um but uh you know doing pretty well uh we unfortunately do not have noah with us today which where we are quite sad about um but we do have a special guest in his place and that is my good friend jillian how are you doing jillian
1: hi justin i'm doing great i've got a cup of coffee and a cat on my lap so i am very good
0: awesome we are very happy to have you um we are. We have been friends for, I guess, a a little while now. Some um, time. Yeah, um, and we've had some really great discussions about movies that, unfortunately, we have not recorded for a podcast.
1: Yes, I I only really started caring about a lot of different topics in movies once I started talking to you about them. I never cared about the Oscars, uh, and now I I guess I do. Um, oh. And and other various topics, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so before uh so this episode we are going to be talking about the photograph, the uh romance film starring Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield, written and directed by Stella Meggie. And uh we will also be talking about for our larger topic, we'll be talking about uh well, the question, are we experiencing a romance revival? So we'll be talking about the recent spate of uh romantic films. Uh so that will be all in good time. But for now, we are going to start the way we usually do with our full disclosure segment, in which we talk about recent either films or television shows or web series, what have you, that we have been watching. Uh, And I thought we'd start uh, this episode with you, Alex. What's been good for you recently?
2: It's kind of a not exciting time at the movie theaters the last few weeks, I have to say. Uh, but there was one film that I was super interested in, uh, at least tentatively, that I got to check out recently. Uh, it's a movie called Downhill. It's starring Will Farrell and Julie Louis-Dreyfus. This is a remake of the 2014 film Out of Sweden, directed and written by Ruben Ostlund. Uh and that film was highly acclaimed and was nominated for uh for best foreign language film at the Oscars that year. Um and I saw it uh and thought that it was very impressive and not at all what I was expecting. And so when I saw that they were remaking it uh for an American audience with Will Farrell and Julie Louis Dreyfus, I was a little bit apprehensive. Uh the people behind the camera On this is uh, Nate Faxon and Jim Rash, who are Academy Award-winning screenwriters uh, for The Descendants. Um, And their directorial debut came a number of years ago called The Way Way Back, uh, which was kind of like a coming-of-age indie comedy sort of movie. Um, And that's a movie that I liked a decent amount at the time. Uh, So I'm a fan of these people, but I just wasn't sure if they would be able to translate what was great about Force Majeure into a kind of broad American comedy. Um, and I have to say, unfortunately, those apprehensions proved correct, because uh, this is not mm. a good movie. Um, it's got interesting things in it. I should say, if you are not aware of the premise, the basic idea is that uh, Julia e. Dreyfus, and Will Farrell are husband and wife. They have two children who are like around like like 11 12 kind of that age range um and they're on a ski vacation in europe and uh everything seems great like they seem like they have this like perfect little life for themselves and like there might be some tension but not really anything out of the ordinary for a normal married couple uh until they happen to be at a cafe an outdoor cafe at the ski lodge and a controlled avalanche comes uh that uh for a moment looks very uncontrolled and it appears that the entire uh balcony that uh they're eating at is going to be consumed by this huge avalanche of snow uh it turns out that it's really just dust uh like snow dust and that everyone was uh safe and not in any real danger but uh, the characters in the moment are not sh- like aware of that at all, and they think this is the end. Um, and they, uh, Will Farrell is sitting on one side of the table, uh, and his wife and children are sitting on the opposite side of the table. Uh, and as the snow approaches, he grabs his cell phone and runs away, leaving his family to die, basically. Um, and then when everything is revealed that everything's fine and everyone's safe, he just has to kind of go back to them uh with this horrible realization of who he was in that very tense moment um and they have to live with the fact that he left them for dead uh and uh that's a lot to handle um and I think when I first heard about Force Majeure, which has the same premise, I thought it would be more of a comedy. And the interesting thing about that is that they really take that premise seriously and really explore how kind of like horrible and devastating that is and how that could really unwind a relationship and a family. Um, this movie tries to be more comedic, uh, while still being like paying tribute to the more dramatic tone of the original film and it just kind of splits the difference in a, in an odd way that isn't super effective I think that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is amazing in it I think that she's an incredibly watchable and charismatic actress and this movie kind of Solidified the idea for me that I'll just watch anything that she's in. Uh, cause she's just, cause, cause everything around her is not necessarily that strong. Um, it's kind of like a warmed over a uh, very kind of like basic exploration of these ideas in a way where they kind of pull their punches a little bit. Um there's one really great scene between her and Will Farrell and uh after Will Farrell invites two friends from work over to kind of like distract from the tension because he just can't really deal with the fact that he did this and so he's just trying to avoid talking about it with her. Um and things really bubble over in a in a way where it gets real and it gets interesting. Um but There's not enough of those moments. Uh, I will say that there is another character in the film played by uh, Miranda Otto, who uh, anybody who listened to our Lord of the Rings episode from last year knows we're a big fan of her work as an actress. Mm -hmm. Uh, She plays this, like, Kind of like a host at this ski lodge um and she's has like a very thick sort of uh european accent of like not quite clear origin uh <laughs> and she's and it's a very kind of over-the-top comedic performance that is actually the best thing in the movie weirdly and it made me feel like they maybe should have tried to just push even further in that direction, and really distinguish themselves from what the original film was doing, Uh, because at least that felt fresh and interesting in a way that a lot of this stuff just didn't. So um, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily recommend seeing it in a theater, but it's one of those where if it pops up on HBO and you're like looking for something to watch on a Sunday afternoon, uh, you could do worse, especially if you're a fan of of Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Will Farrell, but um, I would keep your expectations low, unfortunately.
0: Oh, that's disappointing to hear, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't say it's unexpected, unfortunately.
2: And I will say I, one last thing: the the writer of this, uh, so the directors co-wrote the film with Jesse Armstrong, who is like one oh, wow. of the lead writers on Veep and the thick of it, and he has such like a cutting, uh, satirical like edge to his other work, and this script is just like a real letdown from somebody like him. That's a shame.
1: I'm intrigued by the premise though i I might check out the original version i I did see the poster for downhill elsewhere, but um didn't know what it was really about but i that premise sounds really interesting and like I would also like to see it in a stage play maybe I feel like that could have some really interesting <laughs> small scenes where the the characters were really just um grappling with each other in a a space where you have to imagine the rest of the set
2: yeah i think that this would be a really uh strong choice to adapt into a stage play because especially the original film it's it's mostly done inside of that one ski lodge basically like there's not a lot of uh, other stuff going on so i think that you could definitely adapt it um and really focus on the kind of like the complicated emotional tension between the core cast and it's a pretty small cast uh So yeah, that Mm -hmm. would be a cool idea, maybe a better idea than what we ended up with for an American remake. And I will say, when I I first saw the trailers and everything, as I said, I was pretty apprehensive about it. And then I actually, through my work as the TV editor of PopBreak.com, I was able to interview uh, uh, Christopher Hivju, who is actually... uh, most people might know him uh, from his work on Game of Thrones as everyone's favorite wildling. Uh, but he, he also had a pretty prominent role in the original film, Force Major, And uh, he has kind of a cameo in this new version. And so I when I interviewed him, I asked him what he thought about being part of like a remake of this original film and like being, and the difference of tones. And he kind of made me really interested in it and, by just saying like you know, he thought that they actually went pretty like deep into the characters, and it's and uh, it turns out that you know, unfortunately, um, it just didn't work dramatically as much as I was hoping it would.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the original. Um, it made my top ten for that year. Uh, well. I think I want to say it was like maybe original festival release in 2013 and then got wider release in 2014. Um but yeah, it's it's really fascinating how it not just what it reveals about him in the moment, but also what it what it re- seems to reveal about the way he may have been all along and then how that ends up uh opening up all these different fissures within the marriage and within the family. Um I think it's re- it's really interesting how the uh the wife in the original film played by Lisa Lovin Kingsley um sort of starts to think well if if he can do this like what what other like what freedoms do I have within this family like what um what kind of rules and assumptions that we've made in this dynamic uh actually aren't there at all um and and what can i actually do um so that's it's just really fascinating how that how that film opens up like sort of a a new understanding of their marriage and their family dynamic um so it sounds like the this remake isn't as interested in that but uh
2: it's well it tries to be but it like just dials everything back so yeah. it, like if the force majeure takes things to an 11 uh this feels very comfortable being at about a five okay <laughs> so <laughs> and unfortunately i feel like you just have to go all the way with it for it to really feel like it matters you know, okay, one last question: Is there a crazy bus driving scene? Uh there is not a crazy there bus driving not. Scene. No. there huh. is kind of okay. a madcap uh sort of thing that happens with a helicopter, though
0: all right, well, uh <laughs> let's see if we can find something a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't we go to you, Jill? What's something that you've been watching recently?
1: Yeah, um, so what Justin and I have been into lately we finished it gosh um a couple of weeks ago i think is the new and just, version just to be
0: clear this is your this is your boyfriend justin not me
1: yes boyfriend justin okay. um yes, okay. not podcast justin <laughs> um so we recently finished the new hbo series the golden compass which was an adaptation of a book series that came out gosh in the early 90s i didn't do my homework as well as you alex um
2: (laughs) well also (laughs) i believe that this series is called his dark materials
1: yes indeed you are correct um so it's a little confusing because the book series is his dark materials and there are three books in this series one of them being the golden compass and then The uh, Subtle Knife, and then The Ember Spyglass is the original trio. But the movie that came out a few years ago was called The Golden Compass, and the TV series on HBO Now that I watched is His Dark Materials. Ah. Uh, Originally written by Philip Pullman. So we finished watching it a few weeks ago, and although I never saw the movie adaptation because it got such horrible reviews everywhere. Um I was so happy to know that it was being uh being revamped for television by a new group of people because I really really love the original TV the original book series. It was so important to my uh coming of age around age 12 to 14 reading these books for the first time um and i don't know that any movie or tv series or adaptation of any kind could really have met my expectations for what i hoped the an adaptation would be like but this tv series actually in some ways it got really close um i was so impressed by the acting abilities of daphne keen who played lyra balacqua um huh. the the lead. And she's quite a young actress. I think she's around 14 years old or so. Um and her acting ability was just really spectacular. Um I was I really particularly enjoyed the scenes that she had with Ruth Wilson, who plays Mrs. Coulter, mm. who is mm, not to spoil too much, uh <laughs> sort of the main villain of the first season, which roughly follows the Narrative arc of The Golden Compass. And whenever Lyra and Mrs. Coulter, uh, Daphne Keene and Ruth Wilson, were in a scene together, it was everything that I wanted. The energy that they fed off each other was really something incredible. Um, they have one scene in, I think, the penultimate episode of the series where they're both definitely playing each other. Uh, but neither one of them is sure whether they have the upper hand or not. And Hmm. they're playing with the vulnerabilities that each of their character has towards the other because of these very strong feelings of, of love and hate that are mingled together for each other. Um, But these are two masterful actors in their Hmm. characters uh, playing against each other. And when the emotion finally boils over to the the breaking point and you see who has actually won this, uh, this competition that they're having with each other. Uh, it's so emotional. Huh.
0: Um,
1: one thing that I, that I did think this series really didn't fulfill um, is uh, so the, the, the series, the book series introduces this idea of demons, which are, um, d a e m o ns demons demons they say demons in the show um that are like an animal manifestation of your soul, so for children the demons keep changing shape changing kind of animal uh because the children aren't aren't settled aren't matured yet um but for adults their demon settles when they go through puberty and they emerge as an, a mature adult person. The the show clearly did not budget enough of their CGI budget, I guess, to make the demons very present in the show. So mm. you will see uh, an animal with some characters some of the time, uh, but most of the characters just seem to have a demon that's not super present or that is just happens to be very small and is hiding all of the time. And so I think in not prioritizing that kind of a, a connection between the human and the demon, it, it hasn't quite made it clear how important that relationship is or what kind of relationship that is outside of the relationship that the human characters have with one another. But overall, I was I was pretty impressed with the show. Uh, some of the special effects are really neat, and the actors do a good enough job, um, but not exactly what I was hoping for in all of my very particular opinions that I have about (laughs) this book series. Uh, So I'd I'd be interested to know if either of you had read the books when you were a kid and had uh, seen any of the adaptations, if it uh, matched your expectations, or if this is one that you haven't checked out yet.
2: So for me, I have not read any of the books, and I did not see the original film uh, when it came out when I was in high school. But I was very interested in watching the series when it was being advertised. I had like when it was first released in the fall. Um, I think that there was a lot of press around it. Uh, the, like every episode of Game of Thrones, I feel like was advertising it. Uh, I think that HBO was definitely trying to pivot this as like the era apparent to Game of Thrones in terms of like if you like <laughs> fantasy epics, yeah. like here's another one. I think uh,
1: everything's trying to be the heir to Game of Thrones <laughs> at
2: this point. <laughs> yeah. But I and I really like the cast. Like those those three main actors that you talk about, Daphne Keane, uh uh and um Ruth Wilson and James McAvoy are just like three incredible actors who I would love to see in anything, really. Um, but the reviews when it came out just was really lackluster right from the start. And I feel like people who were trying to even people who were kind of like I'm giving it a chance, and ultimately had nothing but negative things to say about it when the series wrapped up, so it came about at a time when there was a lot of t v airing, and I just didn't have the time to budget in something that was gonna be kind of a disappointment um so yeah, that's fair, so I just- so I ended up skipping it, um which is a bummer because I feel like those actors are so hard to just walk away from um but yeah, and I know that it's getting a second season already. They're they're already in the middle of, of filming it, I believe. So it's definitely... HBO is committed to, to it for now, at least. But I was disappointed that uh, it wasn't, I guess, as successful of an adaptation as people were hoping for. Uh, and that kind of scared me off of it.
1: Yeah, I think as long as Ruth Wilson was in a scene, then I was totally enraptured. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and...
0: Not surprising.
1: I, yeah. I, I mean, and the, the costume design is another thing. That was that was actually perfect, the costume design. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to definitely give it a try in the second season. Um, also, because I think the plot really picks up in an interesting way in the second and third books in the series. Although uh, the third book, The Ember Spyglass, has widely been <laughs> thought of as unadaptable for television. And so I'm really interested to see uh, how they manage those really difficult scenes that will probably require a lot of CGI help um, and and will be quite difficult to manage the kind of emotional punch that's necessary to make fans of the book feel satisfied.
0: This is a book series that I came to much later, I think than a lot of people did, um, which has kind of been a theme of my life. But uh, anyway, um, this is something <laughs> I remember. I think I read it for the first time between my junior and senior year of high school. I remember I read the three the three books, and um, and especially once I think once I finished the last book, the cumulative effect of the whole series hit me. Um, there's a incredibly emotional moment between sort of the two main characters of the, of the series that just like, man, it's just like, I can't think of many moments in young adult literature or just literature in general that have really affected me that way. Um, we really felt the whole weight of everything leading up to that moment. Um, so it's one that to me has been like, I, I would say it's people talk about Harry Potter. People talk about, um... Lord of the Rings and all. That. I feel like for me, like his Dark Materials is where I would go with like my favorite uh, kind of literary fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. So I did not see the movie. I and I have not seen. This I think that's a good
1: choice show. on all of our parts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: I've not seen the show. I and it's weird, but I almost feel reluctant to see it just because I know it's not going to match what's in my imagination, mm-hmm. but. Um, I did want to mention that uh, my brother, Chris, who has been a guest on this podcast, he has seen the series and his take is very similar to, to yours. Like it seemed like to keep his interest, but he just felt like, I think what he, what he told me was that he felt like they were rushing things along. Like it was just kind of like, it was so plot heavy and that mm. like the moments when it took t- to kind of slow down and breathe a little bit were more of his favorite moments Um so I don't know if that's similar to your experience, but it sounds to me at least that he liked, um, like he enjoyed watching it, but he did have to kind of manage um, manage his expectations a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of the characters um, that I didn't feel a very strong connection to. And I think that's partially because uh, in the book narration, it's all from Lyra's point of view. And her world mm-hmm. is very small at the beginning of the series, and the the HBO series did not take that that perspective. Um, they were already introducing characters uh, that were high up in the administration of Jordan College, for instance, or of the Magisterium, which is the the church like uh group that's at the center of all the malevolent actions happening um mm-hmm. And they were showing what they were doing, showing some of the scheming and some of the background conversations. But in the book, you don't really get that because you are you are from Lyra's perspective. You are uh, experiencing all of this stuff with her and learning about things only as she learns about them. And so to split the perspective like that in so many ways, I think, can undercut the emotional relationship that the viewer or the reader feels with lyra the Mm. most important character
0: so a qualified recommendation then would you say
1: yeah i think for for fans of the book watch carefully and uh take time in between episodes to reaffirm your own imaginings about what the world should look like and feel like so that you don't feel like you lose anything
0: all right, well, I'm going to close this out with what I've been watching, um, yeah. and that is the film The Nightingale, which I finally got around to seeing. This is the follow-up film from Jennifer Kent, who is the writer and director of The Babadook, a film that I believe all three of us
2: are big oh fans of. Oh, my God. Yes. I was literally just talking about how much I loved The Babadook last night. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah.
1: And I've been trying to work up the courage to watch it again so that I can show Boyfriend Justin. Um, but I remember it scared the crap out of me the first time I saw it. And I didn't sleep <laughs> right for two weeks afterwards, even though I loved it. So we'll see. I'll keep you updated on whether I get there or not. <laughs> okay.
0: I will say I've seen it, I think, three times. And it's actually gotten a little bit easier each time. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I you know, everyone I'm sure has their own uh, different reactions to it. Uh, but uh, I'm going to talk about the Nightingale, which I think is a real is a film I would highly recommend. Um, this is a film that I was looking forward to ever since the Babadook came out. I think uh, I was just so curious, like, ooh, what's she going to do next? Like, what is she interested? What kinds of stories is she interested mm-hmm. in telling? And um she resisted a lot of uh calls from big studios. Uh I think at one point, I don't know, I don't know how far they got, but I think at one point they were like possibly at least in talks for her to maybe direct Wonder Woman. Um I don't know what that would have looked like, but um but this was something that really was uh something a story that she really wanted to tell. And uh, this is the story that, before I describe this movie, I'm going to put out a content warning here uh, because it's a very intense film and it deals with some very um, difficult subject matter. Um, the premise is about a woman in early 19th century uh, Australia, specifically Tasmania, or as it was known at the time, Van Diemen's Land, um, which was essentially a penal colony. Uh, this woman. Is uh, she is an Irish convict? Uh, she is technically the property of a British soldier there, and um, she eventually is see, seeks revenge against this soldier and some of his um, some of his underlings for these horrible crimes that they commit against her, uh, in which she is raped and her family, her entire family, killed uh and that is kind of the premise of the film as she attempts to secure a aboriginal guide um to help get her through this very tough terrain in Tasmania to lead her to um this man who who you know took everything that she had and um so that's uh as you can imagine this was not a film that got a wide release uh this was i Remembered when I heard about the prince like, oh, well, that sounds really uh, Horrifying but I'm interested to see the approach that Jennifer Kent takes because if there's one thing I've learned about both reading and um, Hearing interviews with her. It's I'm really impressed with her uh, With the responsibility that she seems to take as an artist um, in ensuring not just authenticity, but also the empathy that she seems to have for all of her cast and her crew. Um, so during the filming of this film, for example, uh she consulted with Aboriginal elders in Tasmania to help recreate some of the history of the people there who factor very heavily into the film. Um, they worked with a language center there that is that their goal is to help construct um the Aboriginal language in Tasmania of the time. Uh, to try to make it as authentic as possible because, unfortunately, because of the colonial practices that occurred in Tasmania, uh, many of the uh, native speakers were wiped out as a result of that. Um, There were psychologists on the set to help actors and crew deal with some of the more difficult scenes in this film. There are more than a few of those. but I do want to say I think the way that Kent handles this just overall is so it's just responsible and it's really fascinating to see what could be I think is almost like a her take on the uh rape revenge uh exploitation film and really find ways to um to twist and turn those tropes the where we think the film is going. Um in a way that I think is very responsible and very uh, invested in the historical context and the larger traumas as well as the uh, smaller scale traumas uh, that are present in this film. Um, It's a much, I would say it's not quite as, I think by design, it's not as like sort of like disciplined to do with, it within an inch of its life the way that the babadook is it's a much earthier film um you really get a sense of the terrain here i think just i was watching this with some other friends and we were just remarking on like whoever did the location scouting here like probably like needs to like you know be making as much money as they possibly can cuz it's just you're just amazed by the terrain which is simultaneously beautiful and savage The acting here is incredible. Um, The lead actress uh, is Aisling Franchosi, who uh, we just mentioned Game of Thrones before. She played uh, Lyanna Stark in a few oh, nice. scenes in Game of Thrones. And this really, I think, gives you a better idea of like all the things that she can do. Um, she's incredibly fierce, but also like way in over her head. And her relationship with uh, the character of Billy, played by Bekele Ganambar, who plays her Aboriginal guide, is really, I think, another thing that really undercuts uh, this kind of film. Where typically you would see a woman who 's very much on her own like a lone wolf, and this film is really about her bond with this other uh, with this other man, and they both kind of come from very traumatic backgrounds, but they 're very separate so it's you know, really fascinating to see the way this film deals with intersectionality here. Um, because there's a level of distrust between them that sort of, um, as they get to know one another, as they sort of learn more about one another, they develop a bond um, that is really, I think, one of the few uh, hopeful <laughs> things about the film. Um, but I I I feel like I could go on, but I, I just, I don't want to reveal too much. I think it's a film that I, why I would recommend, I would also say um, you have to kind of know what you're getting into. Um, you know, your results may vary. I know for myself, I felt like I needed to watch this with other people. Um, that's to, to deal with some of the more violent scenes within it. Um, I think you will be very rewarded by seeing something like this. Um, but you do have to know kind of what you're dealing with. So not the first time I've recommended a film on this podcast that deals with some very difficult subject matter, but I do really want to champion this one because I don't feel like it got any kind of release. And I would have loved to have seen this in the theater. And I want to give credit to my friend Aaron, who I saw this with, who has also been a guest on this podcast, who not just rented this film, but actually bought it um, sight unseen because of his uh, love for Jennifer Kent as a filmmaker. And uh, I second that. So yeah, definitely see this film if it's something that you think you can handle, because I think you will be richly rewarded. Let's go into talking about The Photograph, uh, a yeah. film that unfortunately I did not have the chance to see before we recorded this. I deeply apologize to our listenership as well as to my two co-hosts. Um, <laughs> but, uh, as I said before, I've been a little bit busy, but uh i'm I'm curious to hear what you guys thought, so I thought we'd just start with your kind of general thoughts um Jill, did you want to start kind of with your general take?
1: Yeah, sure, because of the topic for our podcast this week, I started thinking about uh what romance films I had seen recently, and I thought that I uh hadn't really watched a lot of romance films, but then I thought about it, and I came up with with quite a few um that are usually more in the in the romantic comedy genre. I watch a lot of romantic comedies on planes. Um, <laughs> but this was the first romantic drama that I think I've seen in a while. Um hmm. uh, I, I, I wanna start on a positive note, but actually I thought this film was like kind of a little bit sexist. Um and 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 not as sexy as I wanted it to be. I didn't see a whole lot of chemistry between the characters. And actually I was much more interested in the uh, romance and the story of the, the older set of characters of Christina and Isaac. So actually, I guess I should start with a little bit of a um, summary of what this film is about before I launch into all my gripes with it. Um, (laughs) So so, uh, the, the film starts with a, a recorded interview of Christina, who is a photographer, um, who is apparently quite a successful photographer working in New York, um, speaking about how she wishes she was as good at love as she was at work. Um, And then we learned that Christina has actually passed away, and the protagonist of the story, or one of the protagonists of the story, is her daughter, May. Um, And so the, the story of the film switches back and forth between Christina's relationship with Isaac, a man that she knew before she moved to New York and had a romantic relationship with, uh, and May, her daughter, and May's relationship that is uh, blossoming and becoming with Michael, who is a reporter writing a story on Christina's life and work. So we move back and forth between these two stories as May learns more about her mother, uh, even though they didn't have a very close relationship. Uh, And Michael delves into the story of Christina's life, and we learn about the relationship between May and Christina, Christina and Isaac, May and Isaac, Michael and May, um, all of these four people's sets of relationships with one another. Um, Mm. So I will say that I I was really intrigued and interested in Christina's life, mostly after she moved to New York, actually, that was what I wish we got more of. In, uh, in the movie was to, to know about how Christina made her life work. Uh, my major problem with the film was that uh, by setting it up with this this interview in the beginning that says I wish that I was as good at love as I was at work, uh, it really downplays the amazing success that Christina has had in her photography. Even though that's how we. In the in the present day, how May and Michael can really get to know about her. So so that was my my original take on the movie. And then uh, May has this relationship with Michael that's that's blossoming. But then Michael gets a job in London, and is he going to take it? And are he and May going to stay together? Uh, going to try to make it work, or is work going to? tear this couple apart as it did with uh, Christina and Isaac. And uh, as it turns out, in the end, uh, May chooses to go to London to be with Isaac. Uh, And so I think the film was trying to get us to feel that um, May has chosen love over work, but we don't really get a chance to see so much of what May's work is like. And it seems like uh, Michael is the actual parallel to Christina in in their two stories, that, that Michael still chooses work and moves away, like Christina chose her work and moved away from Isaac. Uh, but Christina is punished for that decision uh, emotionally, and Michael is rewarded for that decision in that May decides to follow him. Uh, and so I think we're not seeing an equal representation of how men and women are treated for their choices regarding love and work in this movie.
2: So, um, I'd like to talk generally about what I thought about the film, but I do, I had a very different reading on the end of the film, uh, which I think, yeah. So I don't think that the implication is, is that May is moving to London to be with Michael and leaving her career behind. I feel like she visits him there um to honor him and to and kind of expresses a desire to do what he wanted to do which was to try to have a long distance relationship and try to make it work. Um mm-hmm. and I felt like that was the movie kind of saying that she was rejecting the paradigm that her mother felt trapped within which was like her mother mm. always felt like she needed to choose between being committed to herself and her career and actually being able to spend the time developing relationships with other people her daughter included not just like her love life yeah that's true. and and i feel like that by the end of the film may has gotten to this point where she is Seeing that as a false choice and saying we can do both like I don't need like you can choose you can follow this dream of yours to work in London and I can still have my life in New York and we can make it work together because there's no reason to just let people walk out of your life if you care about them and I feel like that was the tension of the film like the mistake that her mother made in the past was this idea that she needed to let people walk away from her or she needed to walk away from them in order to get what she wanted. And that might have been true for her in that context because, of course, we're talking about the early 90s art scene in New York and she's coming from a a poor Southern background. And Mm -hmm. so there may have been a lot of real-world constrictions on the idea that she really couldn't have it all. Maybe she really had to make those sacrifices in order to really get where she needed to go but in the present tense i think that by the end of the film our characters embrace the idea that they don't need to choose and that love is worth fighting for and love is worth trying to find a way to incorporate into your life um but not that we that the characters should give up their life for love like i feel like that they reject that notion as well
1: yeah, I like this reading a lot better, actually, <laughs> um, because it's a much more compassionate reading of the characters. Um, I guess I I felt like we didn't have enough time with May to really understand her point of view on everything in the end, because um, she seemed a little bit without a strong sense of identity for a lot of the film. I think she says at one point, like, I I don't even know who being myself would be, and maybe we are who we're around in the moment, instead of actually having our own personalities, Um which is a, a hard choice to make for a character who doesn't have so much screen time in the movie, because there's three other main characters.
2: Yeah. Hmm. I do think that that was an interesting choice that they made with her, though, and I feel like the reason... Like the character background that supports that idea that this is who she is is somewhat interesting because she's a character whose identity has been shaped by like an absence. You know, she had, and so because of that, she's never really able to develop this true sense of self because she's always. Like, she's defining herself by, like, a lack of relationship with her mother, for instance, or a lack of uh, ability to commit to a romantic relationship. And, like, there's a sense that there's a lot of that sort of thing in her life. Like, she keeps presenting herself as someone who is like, whose whole identity is around not being able to do things versus being able to do things. So if you are only the choices that you don't make or the experiences that you don't have, then it is an interesting question to say, well, who are you then, you know? And so yeah. I feel like... And that's why it kind of... It sets up that ending where she's finally making a choice to go after something that she wants versus to make a choice to stay away from something. Yeah. But I will, I will say that... Um, I think that your broader critique of the film, that the flashback storyline is actually far more interesting and compelling, is something that I felt as well. I thought that mm-hmm. the actress uh, who plays uh, Mae's mom, uh, who is named uh, Shantae Adams, she's not a person who I've seen before in in a film, at least not to my knowledge.
1: Yeah, I looked her up before and she's not in, she hasn't had a lot of credits. But I was also like really astounded by her performance.
2: I think she's incredible, and I think that it's even more so incredible how much of an impact she makes because she is used sparingly throughout the film. and i feel like every time that you flash back to her she's at a slightly different place in her life than she was the last time uh at least emotionally if not literally in terms of uh you know for like the early parts of the flashbacks like she's still in the in the south and she's still in her hometown and trying to navigate this relationship but every time you flash back you do feel like there's a a distinct emotional shift in the character and a and a, a growth in the character and she really goes through a lot of stages of of who she is and what she wants out of life every time you see her. Um, and it's just really, really compelling. And I kind of wish I could have seen a whole movie just about her. Uh, <laughs> cause, and I also think that her love interest is someone who she has a, way more chemistry with than, as you said, Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield, unfortunately, have. But I think that uh, that's also partially because... I felt a lot of the times that the, that the dialogue scenes, especially between Lakeith Stanfield and Issa Rae, were very overwritten. They felt very literary. I was honestly mm. shocked that this film was not based on a book, when I after I watched after I watched it, I looked it up, and it was it's an original story, and I I just really had all of the kind of like signposts that you would expect from a literary adaptation, mm. um, including like somewhat inorganic dialogue that is kind of being forced into these real people's <sighs> mouths. Uh, well, it's being cribbed whole cloth from the book. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was just not a pro as much of a problem with the other with the, with the storyline in the past. And I think that's because in that, in those scenes, uh, the director really allowed those characters to just relax and have this kind of interesting, like, vibe with each other. And I think that's a strength of the film overall as well. Like, I think that I liked this film a little bit more than you did, but I will say it's not... um I had higher hopes, I'll say. Um, But I think that the best parts of this film is that it's a story about people like trying to live their life the best way that they can and kind of making mistakes and figuring things out. And there's the tension is very low stakes and real realistic. And it just has this kind of very comfortable, relaxed vibe to it that is very unexpected in a romantic drama where you're like almost anticipating this kind of like melodramatic aspect to it you know um and i really liked that like i felt like i could just continue watching this film and watching these people for a long time after the credits ran because they were just people that i liked you know and they were like fun and interesting and just felt very comfortable around each other and that made me feel very comfortable as an audience member yeah i'm curious just because um You both have mentioned how you felt like the older
0: story was more interesting than the one between Israe and Lakeith Stanfield. Did you feel, I guess my question is, did you feel in addition to that, like there wasn't maybe the right, like they weren't like commenting on each other in an effective enough way for you? Um, Do you feel like they were better in isolation?
2: no i would say for me at least i would say that that's not the case i would say that Mm -hmm. they really did speak to each other in ways that were very interesting in terms of the ways in which uh like your your fam like your familial trauma and your familial like legacies kind of impact your present life um and there's a really didactic way of creating that sort of dynamic where it's like, Mm. everything that she did is exactly the same as everything that her daughter is doing now. And you know, you need to like, literally learn from the past. And it's a little bit more, you know, impressionistic than that uh the, the 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 dynamics are similar but distinct in interesting ways mm. and i don't think that necessarily maybe the characters are always coming to the same conclusion that the audience is making based on what you're seeing because there's the characters in the present tense are still people and so they don't have this like magical like foresight that they or hindsight <laughs> that you do when you're just seeing all of it strung up like that um sure. The way that the story is brought into the present is through a letter that um, May's mother writes to her, uh, which she receives after her death. And so you get this sense of, like, she is discovering all of these things about her mother that she didn't know. But what I think is interesting is, is that, you know, at the beginning of the film, the implication is she reads a little bit of it and then she stops because she can't handle it or it's just a lot for her to process. But then at some point, it's clear that she's read this letter over and over again, and we're seeing it all, you know, we're seeing it linearly one at a time. But you get the sense that she's reading this throughout her life that we're watching over and over again, trying to kind of like divine, like what these lessons are that she needs to find from inside of that. And that just felt very realistic in an interesting way because it's Mm -hmm. it's not going to just like a letter from your past relative is not just going to appear and just solve all of your problems right like (laughs) that would be kind of that it feels like it's out of a out of a book you know um but there was enough complexity there that the connections were interesting and i think that they had something to say without feeling kind of too contrived Um, But I do think that the I think that the past story could have probably stood on its own as an interesting film. I think that the present story really needed the past to establish this more complex emotionality to what it was bringing to the to the table.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really excellent way to put it. Yeah, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I, I especially like I appreciated the the parallels that they were making between uh between the the mother's life and the daughter's life, like literally retracing the same steps in the same club in New Orleans. Um uh, but updating the music, uh which was interesting. But then I wasn't sure about like exactly the parallel that they were drawing between Between the choices that Christina made and the choices that May was making.
0: Would you say it was a case where the, like, are the choices, were they very obvious or more
2: subtle? The movie does this very interesting thing where it allows you to believe that Christina, who is May's mother, that she is making the choices that really are best for her in the moment. Mm. Um, But they're choices that she can, like, once she grows old and develops a kind of hindsight about her life, there are regrets. There are choices that she kind of wishes that she could take back or decisions that she wishes maybe could have been different. But the film isn't judging her for those things. And it almost, in my opinion, is saying like she did what she needed to do in order to have the life that she wanted to have. And now that she has the life that she wanted to have, she has kind of the luxury of of regret. And so Mm. her daughter can now learn from those regrets without judging her mother for the choices that she made. And I think that's a very interesting Mm. and more complex idea than you're used to in this sort of story.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true.
2: Usually there's a sense of like, when there's regret, it's like I made a mistake and I did the wrong thing and I wish I could take it back, you know? And that's not really what, it seems like is happening here. there's something more nuanced than that, and I really yeah. appreciated that.
1: no, I think you're right that it's a it's a more complex form of regret than we are used to experiencing in um in romance movies, I guess, or at least in the kind of romance movies that I have seen lately and yeah, I guess i I wish we had a little bit more time to tease out what regret meant for Christina. It's a shame that she uh that her presence is. As such a, like a ghost that doesn't have any more agency. I wonder what the film might have looked like if she had had more of a voice that could change.
0: Does she have? Because I, I I assume the the man that she was involved with who is that? I don't. That's
1: Isaac. <laughs> this is
0: all based on my uh, viewing of the trailer. Um, so <laughs> bear that in mind. Um, but there's like. There's like an older parallel with that gentleman is that is that the same for Christina, or does she not have that?
1: No, she does, yeah, oh. cause there's um Isaac oh, is okay. her her partner um that she's mm-hmm. with that her her mother tells her, um, oh, you shouldn't be with him because he can't provide for you, and uh, you won't be able to support each other if you're with him he's not Mm -hmm. he's not high class enough basically um to to keep supporting you um but she goes with him anyway to new orleans and they have this very romantic time there and then she says i want to go to new york uh and and make a go at it with my photography Hmm. um and he he has regret too because he doesn't go with her um and he doesn't Mm. He sees her years later with a child and doesn't ask if it's his child, um, the Uh child being May. Um, And he says later to Michael, who is doing the the article about Christina, he says, I didn't know how to be with a woman that I had to keep up with. And if I could do things differently, Hmm. I would have gone after her.
2: Yeah, and by the way, Justin, uh, the older version of Isaac is played by Rob Morgan, who I know yes, you love, my guy. He's he is incredible in it. Like, he gets, I he, there's like three scenes in the whole film that he is in, and he just like is the emotional heart of the film somehow, mm-hmm. despite that, wow. like despite having such small screen time, uh, yeah. because he, cause he really, I think he speaks most directly to a lot of these types of Themes that we're talking about, um, he gets to be kind of the the wreckage of Christina's life, you know, that we see in the present day, um, and it's and it's a very kind of sad regret, but very like. It feels real, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing histrionic about it. There's nothing like he led, like he had a good life after she left him, but he still always loved her. And that way, and the older he gets, the more that weighs on him. And that's, but that's it. It's not like, oh, it was such this horrible decision. And I, and I, I, I hated my, the wife that I had was stuck with. And I thought every day, but it's like nothing, it doesn't go that big with anything. It's just kind of like it feels like you're really walking into some like a real person's living room and i'm telling you about the one that got away you know mm. um and i think that he just there's such an emotional gravity to the way that he talks about her yeah. uh and it just he he sells it in a way that i think few other actors could um you really get a sense of his entire life and his entire relationship Just in the few lines of dialogue he has as he's cooking crab in his kitchen, (laughs) like it's just, (laughs) it's just incredible to see.
0: Even in the trailer, it's like he's like reliving a lifetime in you know a sentence.
2: (laughs) Yeah, just and or just on the expression on his face. Um, So, and I think I think that Lakeith Stanfield has a similar quality to him. Uh, And his character in the present day, there's a lot that is left unsaid about who he is and what drives him and like what regrets he might have that he's bringing to the table. Um, But for me, at least, I always felt like I really knew who he was and what was driving him. Um, And I knew where he was emotionally in any point in the film, even though there is a there is a pretty wide range uh, and it doesn't always get explicitly stated. I think think that's true. I think that the film really works as well as it works because those three main characters that we're talking about, um, Christina being the third, they're all portrayed by actors who just give this incredible depth and incredible history and incredible complexity to kind of a spare approach to exposition and approach to like what the audience is being given out. And I think that Issa Rae is an actress who I really like and who is really good at being present in a moment and is very good at making an audience want to root for her right away. I think she has that quality, that likability quality where you're with her from as soon as you see her, you know, and, and you're like you you are in her corner for the rest of the film. But I don't think that she necessarily has as strong of an ability to use her gifts as an actress as a shortcut for characterization. And I think that the film would have—I think the film would have been better if it was probably like thirty minutes longer, and it gave all of these people mm-hmm. more to do, mm-hmm. and you got a, a, a stronger, more full sense of who all of these people are. Um, but that not being the case. Her limitations as an actress are, I think, what ends up holding back the film from feeling as strong as it could which is unfair because what i'm asking for of her in this role is something that's an incredibly difficult skill that very few even great actors have you know i don't think that she's giving a bad performance i just think that this film is a little too underwritten in certain ways and a little too overwritten in other ways and you really need to be a certain type of actor to navigate that in a way where you're still presenting a fully fleshed out person by the end of it.
0: Um I did want to cuz I I know we've talked about some of them already but I did want to s- sort of see if there are other supporting characters that or supporting actors rather that really um stood out for you. It sounds like the casting was was pretty well done here, no?
2: Yes, oh absolutely. The supporting <sighs> cast is just incredible across the board, I think. Um uh like Keith Stanfield's brother is played by Lil Rel Howard. Um, and his and his sister-in-law is played by uh Tiana Paris. Oh, yes. And they're just so, so great. Like I would watch like a 30 Minutes To Come About Their Life, like every week. <laughs> <laughs> they have such like a they're just like so real people and they have such a fun dynamic with each other. And every time that the movie goes to their house, uh, it just has this like extra cool hangout vibe that you just like wanna spend more time in. So I thought that they really were great. Um, in very in pretty small roles they left a big impression as well and I mean there's really not like a false note in this movie like there's it goes pretty deep like Courtney B. Vance who's an incredibly uh, capable actor um, who could be the star of a film like this Mm -hmm. uh, he gets like two scenes as May's like dad like the the man who raised her and who she believed was her father uh for her whole life before receiving this letter um and it's like he's just great like he's just like a really supportive dad who like kind of you get a sense of what he was like as a father and what their his relationship with with Christina was and also what his relationship with May was growing up and the ways in which that was complicated and sort of messy because I because mean, he had this kind of sense, like you get the sense that he kind of was willing to make excuses for Christina's lack of ability as a parent because he knew her in a way that his mother, his her daughter, never could know her because oh. she was so closed off to her daughter, partially because of the regret and guilt that she felt over denying her her true father, you know. And you get so much of that in such a brief scene. Like, truly, it's like two minutes of screen time. And it's just, you get this full world that happened decades ago. Um, And yeah, I think that that's true about all of the performers in this this film, to some degree or another. And I admire that restraint. And I admire that kind of, like, low-stakes vibe that they have. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it kind of, it just it also seems to put a ceiling on how good of a film it ultimately was able to be as a result. How about for you, Jill? Were there any performers that really stood out for you?
1: Um, I think that because, because the four main characters required uh, so much of the screen time, there weren't so many of the supporting actors that we really got to understand their lives and motivations. Um, but I do really agree with Alex that the the scenes where we had conversations with the The main couple's friends that they were interacting with other people really helped to to flesh out the kind of characters that they could be um like to see how each of the characters interacted with children or how they how um how may would interact with a a a new partner's friends who she has just met under very pressing circumstances um there was a, a hurricane outside and they had to go to their friend's house to to shelter because there was uh, no electricity on. And so she's just meeting these people, really for for the first time, uh meeting the the brother and sister in law of Michael, um yeah. and their children. And I, I think that, that that scene, while it wasn't so important to the progression of the plot it allowed for this casual characterization uh, that helped us understand the motivations of the characters and the the relationships they could have to other people even though we didn't have enough time to know so much about them in a different way
0: well I I, it's funny because just in, in listening to the two of you talk about this I'm like I'm I I don't know if the film is actually as interesting as it seems like <laughs> it was cause, but uh I I'd be I I would be curious I I'm definitely going to check this out at some point so I'm I'm curious to see uh, uh what I think
1: Yeah and I think you should you should give it you should give it a try and I I will admit that my um my feelings towards romances are are often my initial judgments are uh, looking for ways that the relationship is not realistic or is not uh, you know lo- looking for things that that might bother me, um, mm-hmm. which you know it's it's sometimes a fun way to pick apart movies. But I I really appreciate Alex's take on uh, the the nuanced kind of regret that the characters were. Ooh. We're feeling in this film, and I, I think it would. I, I think that hearing your take on it has encouraged me to be a little more, um, a little gentler with the movie. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I think that that's. I think that that's the perfect. Word choice because, like, if I had to use one word to describe this film, gentle would definitely be on that list. Yeah. Mm. I think, and I think that that's what's nice about it. It's just such a change of pace from the films that I'm used to watching, uh, in a way that was just really nice. Like, it was like everyone in the film is kind and no one in the film is actively trying to hurt each other. You know, there's no, there's no trauma. In this film, even though there is complicated feelings and emotions, uh, there's nobody no one is lashing out against each other because like to compensate for a lacking in their own emotions and stuff like it's just it's a very nice movie at the end of the day. And kind of it's nice to have that every once in a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I would give one final note to say that I really did like uh, the, the soundtrack and the music in this movie. Um, I was listening to see if I could have anything intelligent to say about the music since I am a a person who studies music. Um, And I I thought that the the piano theme that they came up with to to use whenever it went back to Christina's story, that sort of haunting little riff on the piano, um, was really lovely as a cue for bringing the viewer back into that Older time period, and I could notice uh, a few changes to that to that musical theme. Whenever something new happened, uh, when when Christina met Isaac for for the first time, and they started having this uh, this energy, um, then there was a a new uh, percussion, a, a new drum beat added to. The theme, and so it sort of in, increased the the energy of the theme and and started picking up the the energy, which I thought was really interesting um, and there were a few other little touches that I just thought were really cool um, that made me invested in the soundtrack so if you if you watch it, Justin, I would uh, recommend paying attention to the music because I think that was a really lovely aspect of the movie.
2: Ooh, yeah, it, well, it really helps create a tone that I think really, mm-hmm. that the film really benefits from. And just to say, the the composer of the film is Robert Glasper, uh, and the only other score that he's done um, from a film that I recognize is Miles Ahead, which was the Miles Davis movie from a couple years ago with Don Cheadle. Um, which was
0: technically released, right?
2: Yes, it was technically <laughs> released. <laughs> But uh, he also did a lot of the music for the 13th, the Ava DuVernay documentary. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, definitely, those are films where the music really kind of carries a lot of emotional weight. So it makes sense that he could pick up from there with this film and do what he was able to do.
0: Well, I certainly hope the film live lives up to the level of nuance that the two of you have applied in your analysis. Um, <laughs> but at the very least, uh, I'll go for a gentle romance starring Issa Rae and LaKeith Stanfield. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> yeah, you <yeah. laughs> could do much worse. <laughs> yes,
0: oh yes. <laughs> okay, I guess uh, we'll transition into our larger discussion of romantic films, and I guess specifically the recent spate of these films. Um, I guess I wanted to start by asking, do you feel like there's been um, sort of a lack of these kinds of films leading up to like the last few years? Um, Or do you feel like, or do you feel like, uh, I I don't know, or is that something that you pay attention to? Because I know for myself, I, I like seeing romance within different kinds of films regardless of genre um but i'm hard pressed to think of a lot of films i'm like what are like like really obviously like romances or romantic comedies um so i guess i just want to start by asking what you think about if you do feel like there's been a lack and recently there's been a little bit
2: more of a revival uh i definitely think there has been a revival over the last few years i feel like romantic comedies especially just were um kind of driven into the ground by like the early 2000s uh where they were pairing actors who weren't necessarily great fits uh with each other and they were putting them with uh pretty lackluster scripts you know i'm thinking of like jennifer um Aniston and Gerard Butler in like the bounty hunter, you know, oh, like, <laughs> like that. I feel like that era, you know, there's like a couple of, uh, Catherine Heigl films around that time. Uh, a couple of Matthew McConaughey films around that time where it just like, they just stopped putting in the work. And I think that the executives got pretty cynical and the good ones that were there didn't get enough attention and the bad ones got too much. And it kind of just killed the genre for a while. Um, Along with other reasons, like different trends in the film industry, like an internationalization of the film industry, shifting more from uh, like star model to franchise model filmmaking. All of those things created this kind of vacuum where romantic comedies uh, couldn't really exist. And I think romances kind of followed suit. I mean the notebook was huge in the early, in like the mid 2000s. And I think for about a five year period after that, there were a lot of like notebook clones where it was like, Mm -hmm. if we could get you in and you're going to cry and it's going to be great. Um, But again, I think that there was kind of like a cynicism to that model that people started to get tired of. Um, And I feel like in the last two years or so, we really have seen a resurgence of movies about love and about relationships and, part of that is in the big th- in on the big screen because you know people are getting uh, like different types of people are getting opportunities to tell their stories in a way that generates enough publicity to actually get these movies made in a way that they weren't before and we also have things like Netflix which is trying to identify like areas of film that people like that are not being mass-produced by major corporation-driven studios anymore and trying to fill those holes for their users uh, to grow their base. So, you know, I think the last couple of years we've seen a lot of that, like with movies like To All the Boys I Loved Before, um, which just its sequel just came out this past month. Um, and also last year we had someone great, which was uh, Gina Rodriguez, Rom-com, also where Lakeith Stanfield Just, played yeah, the I'm love interest. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I think that there's this... Finally, people are... I think that the the genre was allowed to rest long enough where people started to really miss it. And now there's these new paths forward that are letting us see them again. Um, but they definitely seem to do better in streaming than in the theaters Mm. although you know i mean the photograph was a surprise it, it was a surprise hit i think it overperformed expectations it's not going to make like 200 million dollars but it definitely overperformed expectations and is doing pretty well at the box office right now and you know a couple years ago we had crazy rich asians which came out mm. and did great great business so it's definitely possible to get a hit um theatrically but i think that people really like the model of pulling up a streaming service and just banging out something light and something nice and something romantic and something that like makes you feel and uh, is kind of low stakes because the world is very high stakes. And sometimes it's nice to just like take a break with like pretty people who fall in love. (laughs) (laughs) Jillian, what do you think?
1: (laughs) Yeah, my feelings are similar, um, especially about the, the boom in Netflix Netflix romance movies. Um, and I, I think a lot of that, or at least a, a sub subgenre of it, would be the romance based on a YA novel, a young adult novel. Um, that being to all the boys I've loved before, but also, oh gosh, there were a whole bunch of them that came out recently. They're always it Be up. My Maybe. Always be my maybe. Um Sierra yeah, Burgess up. is a loser, which was not good. I <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was a, a weird take on Sierra No. Uh I was yeah, it's it's not a good look. That's um that what that
0: movie's about?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Oh um my but God. it's not it's people not great. always
2: want to remake Sierra No, and like they almost never should. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it's it's remaking Sierra No, but like with no regard for modern conceptions of uh what enthusiastic consent looks like. Um or mm. informed consent even. Uh Uh-oh. yeah. So that was that was not a not a example that anyone should uh, seek out, but it, it did exist. Um and there is other ones. I've watched so many romance movies um with young people on planes now. What did I watch? Um Five Feet Apart.
2: Yeah, which I is take from a, last a year. takeoff
1: on um the Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. There definitely. was the Fault in Our Stars which started the whole thing um there was the sun is also a star which i remember very little about i was it was a long plane ride um but yeah (laughs) there's this whole
2: that the sun is also a star i saw that trailer a lot right before it came out and that that trailer was like a full feature film with like how much (laughs) plot and like crazy swings and stuff are in it like i couldn't imagine watching it as a movie (laughs)
1: indeed um but i i think that this feeling that you brought up about the world is so crazy and so stressful that sometimes all you want to do is go to one of your many available streaming services and watch something where two pretty people fall in love with each other and i think that's also tied to the the sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for mm, destigmatization of reading young adult novels for fun <laughs> that like <laughs> you know, it's it's easy reading, it's light reading, lots of people enjoy it anyway, so don't be ashamed that you like to read John Green novels in your spare time. And I think part of the romance genre that features young, cute people is because it's become not such a shame to uh, like to read a young adult novel every now and again.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess I know for myself, just I guess uh, maybe that when we kind of posed this question, I was sort of thinking like, well, it seems like there's been a lot more of these kinds of films, but the ones that really seem to move me are the ones that, or at least the, the moments that, that seem to move me, just when when people can share vulnerabilities with one another. Um, mm-hmm. I know like we mentioned it before, but to all the boys I loved before, it's this really lovely scene between the two leads where they're having this conversation, I believe it's in a kitchen, something, I always remember that setting too. Um, and just kind of like sharing like some of their, not just like their hopes, but things that they've been through that they probably haven't told other people their age, certainly not their their friends. And because of the, I won't get into it, but because of the nature of their relationship at that point, it almost gives them that freedom. Um, so I guess this is all to make a, lar- a larger point that I think this ro- romantic revival—we're calling it that—I think allows for those kinds of moments, allows us to see romance in different ways, um, and as as much as I do, you know, pretty people falling in love, great, but <laughs> but um, but I think also allows for some real moments of honesty. And if that's on a streaming service or, you know, hopefully also in a theater, then then I'm all for that.
2: Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't say it better myself. I think that that is uh, – there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just – I think that it's – I think I'm always happy when there's a diversity of uh, types of films that are getting out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's a lack of that, it definitely – like when there's a lack of romance – uh, it, you feel it after a while. You're like, oh, there's like, I feel like right now we're kind of going through that with comedy. Like there's been a lack of like good mainstream comedy hits the last yeah. like three or four years. And it's like you get maybe one. And even that, it seems like it transcends less than it used to, uh, into the mainstream. And it's just, it's, it's fun to get these like, cultural touchstones that everybody is connecting to emotionally at various levels. Uh and I feel like you saw that with a movie like To all the girls I uh to all the boys I love before. Like that's a movie that like a lot of people just like lost their minds over and like it <laughs> penetrated the culture in a way that was fun. Um and that we were lacking, you know? Um mm-hmm. and I think that we're seeing that more and more, you know, like Love Simon came out a couple years ago oh, and that yeah. was that was yeah. cute. I, I
1: saw that on a plane.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was cute and everybody had fun with it and it was good. And like now, maybe nobody remembers that it existed, but it served its purpose (laughs) for like a couple of months. And that's good. More movies. Like that should exist in the world, you know, like not everything has to be the best movie ever or like the most exploding action movie, crazy stuff and the culmination of 27 films. Like sometimes it could just be like a fun movie that you get to watch and everybody and you're like, oh, did you see this? And there was like, oh, yeah, I heard that was pretty good. And like, then that's it. and You can move on. Like that's yeah, we need more of that just to bind us as a people during these tumultuous times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So well said.
0: (laughs) I guess sort of in in line with with that you're talking about um like the diversity of these kinds of films Alex. I guess for both of you are there, what kinds of romantic films would you like to see maybe in the future?
2: Uh well you know I mean as a gay person it's always nice to see gay people get the opportunity to express love and intimacy on screen cuz that mm-hmm. feels like something that happens so infrequently. Um and you like as you often have to watch straight couples um interact and translate what that's like um in order to relate to it which is fine and that's part of going to films and experiencing movies but it is nice to see something that feels more relatable um that uh maybe even forces non-queer people to have to do that translation every once in a while, which is, you know, (laughs) I think everyone benefits from. So that is definitely something that I would obviously like to see more of. It's also just nice to have the potential to see a movie that's like about gay love that's not also about like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or like also (laughs) about like, like truly like traumatic things that are happening around these people's lives like you know where like they're being like thrown out of their house or they're being abused or they're or like they're deeply in the closet and and it's like sure all of those things absolutely still exist and still happen and those stories should be told but also there's just a lot of people who are in same-sex relationships who just like fall in love and have a nice relationship or maybe somebody cheats on them and there's conflict or like, you know, you're dating somebody and then like there's a hot guy that they start working with and you get jealous and then you have to deal with it. Like, you know, like that happens too, you know? (laughs) And uh, it would be nice to get the chance to see that more often on screen because then you can actually relate to it in a different way. When the only type of queer love that's on screen is like the most, emotionally heightened situations, then it all and it has to be about social issues and not just people. Uh it Mm. can have kind of an alienating effect on both the queer audience and a general audience that maybe only thinks about queer people in one way. And it would be nice for them to see them in a more normal way where like average queer people interact. And then they could say like, oh well that's like my relationship or Oh, that's different from a relationship that I've had and it's interesting to see those differences. You know, that's also a thing that is that is cool to have the opportunity to see. So I definitely would say I would like to see more of that.
1: Yes, absolutely. Seconded on uh my part and I would say specifically I would love to see more stories with young queer women who are not sexualized. I really enjoyed Book Smart for uh one of the the smaller subplots uh, of uh what is the name caitlin denver who is a, a young up-and-coming actress who deaver. i really ex- deaver yeah deaver oh my god i'm sorry yes caitlin <laughs> deaver um but i i saw her recently in booksmart and then in unbelievable the the uh i think it's a limited yeah. series uh-huh
2: and yeah, um, she's really good and at she's,
1: that. She's just great, um, I can't wait to see more from her and I loved the the plot that her character had in Book Smart of chasing after this girl that she's so into, and then she gets her heart a little bit broken but but finds that there's love elsewhere, and it was such a casual like it wasn't even a thing her sexuality wasn't even a a problem or something she had to overcome or something that her best friend had to come to terms with. It was just a fact of their relationship of their relationship as friends and of her life as a young woman growing up. It was so great. um I would like to see more like that
2: well and and like not to not to interrupt, but I think a cool thing about that relationship that was on like about that character and her pursuit of love in that in that film was that it got like a big part of that storyline was her trying to figure out if the girl she liked was queer and yeah Yeah. and it was and it which is like a very common experience that queer people have you know like you Mm -hmm. have you're attracted to somebody and then you unlike in a world where you're straight and mostly everyone else is straight you just assume that they are unless they tell you otherwise most of the time like as a queer person you kind of like what you are attracted to somebody and then you have to figure out like is that even like a possibility right and but in a lot of the times i've seen that in the past and it's like this very like emotionally like tense and very like uh wrought kind of like experience because it's like oh if I if I make a pass at them and then they're not then they're gonna get mad and I'm gonna be like bullied and and it wasn't that at all it was just like she just didn't know and she was kind of awkward and like had a hard time just like asking and so she kind of and that was just like really relatable and then once that gets resolved there's no like tragic outcome to it it's just like a relatable (laughs) like normal life outcome to it, which is which was great. And I like loved seeing that. Because that is a very queer experience, but it mm-hmm. didn't have to be traumatic. And it wasn't. Because it's, you know, sometimes in real life it can be, but a lot of the times it's not. And every single time we see it on screen, it shouldn't have to be traumatic, you know?
1: Yeah. And it it was so cute because the girl she has a crush on is like so definitely obviously queer. But but like you never know and that's what felt so relatable about it was as an outsider being like yes girl it's okay go for it but also knowing that you yourself whether you're straight or queer or anything have also experienced that fear of of not being sure uh whether the other person likes your gender or is interested in you in particular um Mm -hmm. it was so so sweet and fun and just a, a pleasure to watch um i also would love to see more romance movies that are encompassing uh wider parts of the queer rainbow um like we can have a uh, pretty straightforward uh white queer romances that follow a mostly heterosexual model for how a romance progresses. Um, and I would love to see braver takes on that. Like, what would a mainstream romance with a non-binary lead or two look like? What mm-hmm. would a mainstream romance with someone who practices polyamory, what would that look like? You know, just a, just more, more all of it of different kinds.
2: <laughs> Justin, what would you like to see in a romantic film? Um, so I'll first
0: say yes to all. <laughs> um, I will also say I kind of just I would love to see more films where romance is just kind of a, a fact of life and doesn't necessarily have to be the driving force behind the film. I mean, I think about some of my favorite couples in movies and the films that they're in are are not I don't know if I would call them romances, but the love between those people is so genuine and so undeniable. Um, you know, the one of the very first ones I think of is just is Marge Gunderson and her husband, Norm, in Fargo. It's just it's not the focus of the movie, but it's always there. And it's this just sense of decency and um, and just like unadulterated, pure love of two people who have been together for a while, um, but who have just been incredibly faithful and supportive of one another. That's I'd love to see I like to see love like that that's just kind of there. Um I love see I mean I also I think of it is like I would say it's probably it's more of a I guess it's more of a subplot but the relationship between um Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett and Malcolm X I that's like one of my favorite parts of that film in a film that is about you know, had this has this incredible historical um, scope to it, and yet Lee and his cast just make the time for that relationship that really, once it's established, continues to inform the rest of the film. Um, so I guess I like seeing, I like seeing that kind of thing. I like seeing romance that's kind of just there and just this fact of life, because I think that's how we when we experience life, while romance can be a huge part of it, I think it's certainly the desire of a lot of us that it's a huge part of our lives, but it's not the only part of our life. But it doesn't mean it's not there in the background sort of informing us in ways we might not even be um, aware of. And uh, so, yeah, I guess I want to see more of that. I would love to see more of the kinds of relationships that the two of you have talked about um, in that capacity as well, because I think it creates this sort of normalcy to it. And, and that I think is something I, I just, I feel like that is so important to show that this is, a, this is just, this is something that happens. This is a natural thing that happens. And um, so yeah, I'd like to see more of those things normalized, I guess. All right any other any other opinions on our uh, romantic revival that we have fully declared as happening
1: um just that i'm i'm now uh, in the mood to go and find some more modern romance films so Ah. yeah i i you guys have have sold me on romance as a revived genre and so i'm looking (laughs) forward to checking out some more films.
0: sounds good well that's we hope we can do that on that
2: podcast on this podcast at the very least (laughs) Jillian's heart grew four sizes this day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I promise not to be as cynical about the romantic relationships in the next film that I watch.
2: (laughs) Well, sometimes (laughs) it's earned, for sure. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Um,
0: I just hope the next film you're watching is not Freddy Got Fingered. Anyway. um... (laughs) Is there a romance in that? (laughs) (laughs) There is. God, I don't know why that film came to my mind, but...
1: I, I'm planning on going to see Fantastic Fungi in the theaters. It's playing at our, oh. our local uh, Varsity Davis Theater now, and so I'll let you know if there's any uh, mushroom romances happening there. I mean,
2: they, do, they do reproduce asexually, so I don't know how much love you'll find. It's just a lot of self-love. in that <laughs> For like sure, it. for sure. And that is the greatest love of all, as Whitney Houston told us. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up things there. So let's talk about where we can find everybody these days. Um, I'll start with me. Uh, You can find my work on thecinemaverick.com. I'm also on Letterboxd at The Cinemaverick, um, where you'll be seeing probably more recent reviews in the next few days. Uh, And uh, yeah, so you can find my work there. Uh, Next, we'll go to to you, Jill, is there anything that uh, – do you have any presence online anywhere that you would like to share?
1: Um, I have a minimal presence online uh, as a, an academic in ethnomusicology, but I am planning on having an article out. Uh, sometime in the next six months so uh probably the best way to be in contact with me if you're interested in learning about my ethnomusicological pursuits is to find me on facebook uh my name is jillian Irwin, with a g and then an i um and i i might have a, a linkedin page at some point but uh, we're not quite there yet academia is not so up on the the linkedin
0: all in
2: time <laughs> and uh for you alex so as for me, you can follow me on Twitter and, and letterboxed at Media Thinkings. Uh, you can also find my work as a TV editor on thepotbreak.com. And follow my TV podcast over there called TV Break. Um, and that is on the Breakcast podcast feed, uh, which you can find on Apple podcasts. This month we talked about high fidelity, which is so exactly in the wheelhouse of this conversation that we're having. Um, in terms of both like casual queerness and like relaxing vibes and romance and, uh, how awesome Zoe Kravitz is. And she's just like the coolest person in the world. So, uh, if you want to hang out with her for, uh, five hours, uh, go watch High Fidelity and then come on over to our podcast, uh, TV Break and hear what we thought about it. Um, you can also follow our show at Cinema Joes on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, you can, f- uh, find, um, visual companions to every episode. Um, And you can subscribe to our show um, on Anchor and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Podcasts and all the rest. Awesome. Thank you for that. We want to thank all of our listeners and our subscribers.
0: But for now, uh, this is Justin for the Cinema Joes signing off.